Thanks for listening to this week's sermon from Epicos Church in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. For more information about Epicos, please visit epicos.org. All right. Good morning again. <laughs> uh, good morning again. Does anyone, anyone enjoy playing board games? This is always like, okay, that's about what I expected. Most of you, others of you are like, am I allowed to say it? I like playing board games? You know, uh, a fun game to play. <clears throat> I know some of you are like, I'm just going to check the ESPN fancy draft right now, but just hold on. A uh, fun game to play uh, is called Ticket to Ride. Okay, ticket to ride. The idea is that you have these routes, okay? So you have like New York to Chicago or whatever it is. You have these routes on this map. And you have to, through the, the play of the game, through cards, etc., you have to build trains that kind of connect route to, to route, okay? That's kind of the premise of the game. And so uh, in my home, I have been labeled the most competitive person. All right, this is just a label that I've been given for no reason at all. I have not earned this. This is uh, something they've portrayed on me. And uh, so my wife and I were playing with some friends. Oh, specifically her sister and brother-in-law, Ticket to Ride. And they're competitive too. Now here's what you need to know. Uh, when you get four competitive people playing one game, it creates one interesting game. But when my wife is competitive, see, she, she's not what she would say, a competitive person, except that I'm competitive, and so she just wants to see me lose. This is how we love each other. Uh, she just wants to see me lose. This is like her competition. And, uh, and uh, anyway, so we're playing uh, Ticket to Ride, and as we're playing, all of a sudden, her brother-in-law just keeps throwing down random, random trains, if you will, on the map. We're like, what is he doing? And then we realized he wasn't actually playing the game. That guy was just trying to just block everybody else's routes. That's all he was doing. And we were all getting so angry with him, like, dude, what are you doing? You're blocking everybody. Just play the game. And he just thought he was the coolest thing. He was like, I'm making you guys, you know what I mean, lose. And he made it that, like, his whole ambition was just to ruin ever, anybody else's game. And if you had some, someone like that, you're playing with somebody, it's like their whole ambition is just to, like, disrupt and uh, to, to cause you to, to not have a good time. And that's kind of fun. It's silly. We laugh about it now. Uh, but the truth is, we experience this in life, don't we? We experience this in life. Whether it's the coworker in the meeting who you're just like, are we going to get through one meeting today? <laughs> you know, without you like throwing a grenade here. Or it's on your way to a family reunion and then you're having the conversation with your sister or perhaps your parents or your spouse. And you're just like, I wonder if they will be there. I wonder if they will be there because if they are, oh my goodness, get your phone ready, right? Because when we think about disruption, we don't like disruption. But we also know that like disruption can be a very healthy thing. If you, if you want to get healthy, you have to disrupt your lifestyle, right? If you want to excel uh, in school, you have to disrupt your lifestyle so that you can be disciplined to study, so that you can be disciplined to, to get uh, done what it is you need to get done. Like disruption can be a good thing as well as a bad thing. Did you know that in the Bible we're called to disrupt one another's lives? It says in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, consider, it says even, like, think about how we can disrupt others' lives. 
That's what it says. Consider, consider how we can stir one another to love and good works. This is what uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 says. And literally what the author is saying, I want you to be thinking about how you can be disruptive to each other in your life. And you're like, I know exactly who's read that verse so many times. But he says, disruptive for what reason? To, to love and to do good works. Why? So that, so, that, so that we can not forsake gathering together. Why? So we can be encouraging to one another as the day approaches. So what does it mean to be disruptive in each other's lives? So as we continue the series through this series, we talk about abide, abiding in Jesus. We're going to be really focusing in on what it really means to be a Christ-centered community. And I don't expect everything to necessarily be new. Hopefully, it's a refresher. But hopefully, as well, as we open the Bible together, we can be encouraged. We can be encouraged on how we might do this in a way that reflects Jesus just a little bit better. So let's go ahead and open our Bible. Uh, if you've got a physical Bible, open it up. We have uh, this text on the screen as well, Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Now, this is just part of one long sentence in the Bible, verse 19 through 25. And the first part is all about just how we uh, are supposed to draw near to Jesus and our faith in Jesus and our hope in Jesus. And here is how we're supposed to, uh, here is how we're supposed to live it out with each other. In verse 24, it says, and let us consider how to stir up one another uh, to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is in the habit of some, but what? Encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So to stir is to disrupt. That's really what it means, to disrupt, to agitate. Let us agitate one another to love and good works. And I want to focus on this interesting word, uh, one another. Uh, the word one another appears like a hundred times in the New Testament because it's actually just one Greek word that the translators had to put into two English words because of how our language works. And one of the first places that we see it in the New Testament is actually in the book of John when Jesus is having what we call this last, these, these final conversations uh, with his disciples. So this text is not uh, on the screen, but John chapter 13, John chapter 13, Jesus is this, uh, verse 25, or 35, sorry, 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. So also are, uh, you, uh, you also are to love one another, by this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And what's interesting is this word, one another, that keeps popping up throughout the entirety of the New Testament, one another. And the actual word refers to a mutuality. In other words, it's not me to you, and it's not just you to me. It's about this reciprocalness, this mutuality that we have with each other. Now, we've heard this before, right? Like literally, you can just drive for 10 minutes and you will see a sign somewhere that says love one another. <laughs> love, love each other. And this whole concept of love is something that God has hardwired into our humanity. We have a desire to be loved. We have, we have a desire to love. We see it even in animals, right? A desire to show love and affection. But it's been completely hijacked 
to the point where sometimes we don't even want to say it anymore because of how hijacked it is. Because today, to love somebody, to love somebody means to just accept them for whoever they are, whatever they are, without, without any kind of like uh, pushback, without any kind of uh, guidance, without anything. Like whatever they say, if you truly love them, you'll just let them be. Uh, to love someone uh, means that they are going to maybe even just fit into your own standards. I'm only going to love the people, the people that, that, I, that I want to love. And it's hijacked all over the place. We see it on signs when there's like, right, uh, when people are picketing, whatever it is. But the Bible says it. So we should probably say it too, and we should probably have a firm understanding on what, what exactly it means to love one another. And so uh, Jesus goes on in chapter 14 to talk about the helper who's coming, and then chapter 15 we talked about last week, just the vine and the branches, how we're supposed to abide in Jesus, and it's only because of Jesus that we can even grow in Jesus. And uh, Jesus kind of concludes this first bit by saying, if my joy is in you, then, then your joy may be full. In other words, you will find fullness in me. You will not find fullness in anyone else. You will not find fullness in any other thing or any career or any relationship. You will not find fullness in anyone except in me. And then immediately he jumps back to this commandment. So here we go. This is going to be on the screen. John chapter 15, verse 12 says this. John chapter 15, verse 12 says this. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And Jesus is kind of foreshadowing exactly what he is going to do, right? You are my friends if you do what I command you, which is kind of funny if you just pull the, this is why you should never just read the Bible one verse at a time. <laughs> Imagine if you walked up to somebody and you were like, I want to be your friend, but you can only be my friend if you do everything I tell you to do. You're like, that does not sound like a friendship. And what is Jesus, what is Jesus saying here? He says, you are my friends if, if you do what I command you to do. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends for all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. In other words, Jesus is saying, look, look, you need to catch up with this disciples. You need to catch up with this. I have elevated your status. No longer are you in the dark. No longer are you uh, without knowing exactly what God's will is for, for you and your life. I have shared the knowledge of the Father. We have that here. We have shared the knowledge, and you are now a friend. This is just one of those things. If you put yourself in the disciples' shoes, they're just like, what is going on right now? You're my master. You're my leader. Just say, no, 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 you, you, you are my friend because you know what it is to be like me. And this is, this is how I know that you'll love me if you, actually, if you actually act like me. And we shouldn't be repulsed by this. We shouldn't be surprised by this at all because whatever friend group we're in, whatever social construct we have in our life, we have like unspoken rules, right? And we know this because somebody invites a friend whenever you go out to dinner and they do something or they say something and you just catch everybody else's eye like, oh, they don't know, hmm, you know. They're on the outside, so there is, there is no exclusivity in what Jesus is saying in the sense of like, this is not revolutionary. You are going to act like 
some social construct. You are going to behave in a certain way. And Jesus is saying, if you are going to abide in me, if you're going to love me, well, there, there's a new code of conduct. And at the very top of this code of conduct is loving each other. He goes on to say, you did not choose me, verse 16, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and what bear fruit that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give to you. And we hit on this last week, but right, whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give to you. This is like whatever you, you know where I'm going. It's about, it's about loving people and pointing people to me. This is where I'm going. And if you abide in me, and if you want to love other people, whatever you need to fulfill that, whatever you need in order to grow, to be more like me, ask, and it'll help you get there. And then Jesus just concludes with this book, uh, bookend of saying, uh, these things I command you so that you will love one another. So what is the deal with this one another? One another appears, like I said, a hundred times. So here's just, I, I print out just a few examples of what the other times that, there, that it's used. Uh, loving one another is used like a lot of times, okay? But here's some other ones. In Romans 12, it says, be devoted to one another. Again, it says, honor one another above yourselves. Romans 12 continues to say, live in harmony with one another. Romans 14 says, build up one another. Romans 15 says, be like-minded towards one another. Uh, again, in Romans 15, it says, welcome one another. Be welcoming. Uh, Romans 16, it says, uh, greet one another. 1 Corinthians 12, it tells us to care for the one another. Uh, Galatians uh, 5 says to serve one another. Galatians 6 says to bear one another's burdens. Uh, Ephesians 4 says forgive one another, a verse that many of us love to overlook, right? Ephesians 4 again says be patient with one another, like patience and forgiveness. Uh, Ephesians 4 again says speak the truth in love to one another. Some of us love to speak the truth, right? Speak the truth in love to one another. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Submit to one another. Consider others' benefits uh, other than yourselves with one another, right? Bear with one another. Comfort one another. Encourage one another. Show hospitality to one another. Clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. Pray for one another. Confess your faults to one another. The one another's matter. The one and others matter to Jesus. The one and others should matter to us. And so if we're going to live in a Christ-centered community, we need to have a really good grasp on this one anotherness However you want to say it. How can we truly live out the one another as Jesus explains in the Gospels and as the Holy Spirit teaches us through the rest of the Scriptures? The greatest of these is love, and a lot of these things I read, it's just a sampling, a lot of them sound very familiar to like 1 Corinthians 13, where it talks about like, it just unpacks, Paul unpacks what love is, what the love of Jesus looks like. So this is how we're supposed to treat one another. Then how does Hebrews 10 fit into all this? Because if you read all that list, and then you get to Hebrews 10, and it says, oh, and by the way, disrupt one another's lives. It sounds, it sounds like a, a bit of an outlier, if you will. Like, what does it mean to disrupt one another's lives? And you say, Mark, actually, disrupting, somebody disrupting my life is the very reason why I have a difficult time with church to begin with. Because I don't like being told what to do. 
And if that's true, it's probably true in other areas of your life as well. Let's face it. None of us really like being told what to do. Even if you have like this powerful gift of humility, it takes a constant pouring of the Holy Spirit into our lives to maintain that humility. Why? Because most of us do not like being disrupted. When I was, uh, when I was in seminary, I was a server. And uh, when I was a server at a nice restaurant in Louisville, Kentucky, and uh, I thought I was doing a really good job. I was doing everything I was trained to do. I was constantly thinking, like, what can I do better? I thought I was doing a good job, but, like, I wasn't getting the, the shifts that I wanted. I wasn't getting the tables that I wanted. And I remember the manager came over to me one time, and he's just like, hey, uh, I need you to act more like Leah. <laughs> and at first, I was, like, offended. I was like, Leah? But Leah got the best tables, she got the best tips, and she got the best shifts. And so I realized... I was like, maybe there's something behind this. And so I, I stood back, and I remember, like, uh, I was like, I'm just going to watch Leah uh, surf, okay? I was like, what is she doing that I don't? And, uh, and so I was watching her, and so I kind of sat by the, you know, not like intentionally looked like I wasn't doing anything, but kind of off to the side just so I could see, just so I could study, right? Could study. He said, be more like Leah. I was like, yeah, be more like Leah. And uh, what I realized was uh, Leah had mastered the art of looking busy. (laughs) Um, She was a great server, don't get me wrong, but also what she did was she would find a cup and she would hold an empty glass in her hand and she would just walk around the restaurant. And I was like, that's brilliant. (laughs) She's looking busy. (laughs) So every time the manager looks at her, she's like always near a table, whatever. And then I realized, like, actually, it's more than that. She's giving herself a reason to walk around the tables. And I found myself going like, oh, my goodness. Like, I need to change how I'm serving I need to change how I'm being a waiter so that I'm actually more available to the people that I'm actually supposed to be, supposed to be serving. One of the reasons why it's so hard for us, one of the reasons why it's so hard for us to stir one another up is because we don't like being stirred up. In our hearts and in our minds, we know what's best. We've read the latest books. We've read the latest uh, blogs. We've listened to the latest podcasts. We know what's best. And whatever advice someone's giving us advice, our mind is already rolling with the counter argument of like, well, did you read this person? Did you know this person? Did you know I did this? And, And we're not listening. And whether their motives are pure or not, we find ourselves in these really defensive modes, almost like a victim kind of mentality. It was just like, whoa, 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 whoa. When perhaps, perhaps in those moments, like we're, we're in the process of being stirred. Another reason why being stirred is so difficult, it has to do with trust. If we don't trust the person who's trying to stir us, then we'll never listen to them. And here's what we know about trust. Uh, Trust 
uh, most commonly, at least in my understanding and hearing of it, works like banking analogies work great with trust, right? Like you have a, you have a credit of trust, you have a deposit of trust, you have, a, you have an account of trust, whatever, whatever you want to fill in the blanks with, right? And so doing things that are trustworthy, showing up on time, uh, being kind and courteous, being encouraging, uh, actually doing what you say you're going to do right? Like these are things that what? They build trust. And we see this all over the place. Like your very first job, you realize like if someone, uh, if you want to uh, be trusted as an employee, you need to actually like, you know, do what you're being asked to do. And so uh, these things build trust. And then if we make mistakes, they what? Withdraw some trust, but hopefully we've built enough trust in the bank with each other that uh, when we have to withdraw trust because of a mistake or because we need someone to take a chance on us, right? Like uh, there's enough trust in the bank that we're not going to be in the negative. But sometimes, sometimes we find ourselves in positions, we find ourselves in positions where we think that there should be a large amount of trust in the bank with our friend, with our coworkers, with our bosses, with our spouses, with our parents, with other siblings, whoever it may be, and all of a sudden we realize, like, what do you mean I have no trust in your bank? Stephen Covey talks about this in his book, Speed of Trust. It's a business book, but it's like one of my favorite relational books if you read it in that lens. And he unpacks it like this, like, remember your first paycheck if, if no one taught you about taxes? And you get your first paycheck, uh, and like you, I, I work this many hours, and I make this much, and so I know how much is going to be on the check, and it's not that much, right? It, it, he, he uses that analogy to say, look, it, there may be behaviors that you do, and there may be uh, ways in which you express yourself, ways that you are being perceived, in which your trust is being taxed from other people. And so you go and you're like, I have this whole list, this reason why you should trust me to the end of the year, no matter how much I screw up, because I've done all these things. And you're completely blind and unaware to all the other behaviors that you've had in your life in which your trust is being taxed by that person. And they say, no, I don't trust you for this, 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 et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And we find ourselves in this like negative, negative balance of trust. If we don't trust each other, how are we supposed to stir one another up? Stir one another up to love and good works. I don't trust you. I know what you did. I know you're, and this is it, like the people that we love the most, the people that are closest in our lives, our friends and our family, we know more about them than any human should. <laughs> and we use it against them in this way. You can't, you can't stir me on to love. I know, how, I know what you did to that other person. You can't tell me to leave a 20% tip. I just saw you leave 5%. <gasps> right. No. Let's not talk about tipping. It's a whole other soapbox. Tip your servers, though. All right. Um, <clears throat> so here's the thing, uh, for real. Um, sometimes we find ourselves completely unable to not only stir one another up, but to actually be stirred up. And this is where the depravity of it all kind of completely comes to a head. Because what are we doing? Even in my example that I just unfolded about trust, even in my example, right, of like, like not um, uh, having, so this is like in my example as a server, right? Like in my mind, I was doing everything right. But in my manager's mind, like he was like, you are not doing everything right. You need to do better. Like, well, what is all this dependent on? 
our perceptions of each other. Whether or not we, uh, whether or not we think the other person is worth stirring up. Whether or not we think they are even worth loving or doing good works for or to. And this is what's so hard just when you talk about the one another's because in our social context, in our cultural context, it always quickly goes to a, well, do you deserve it? And this is what's so revolutionary about what Jesus says when he gives the first commandment and he repeats it. So don't miss this. Because you see, like when you join a golf club, let's say you join like a private golf club, you have to act a certain way, you have to dress a certain way. Why? Because the commonality is golf, right? Uh, when you join a gym, it's the same kind of way. You join a gym, you need to go and you need to work out. You can't go in and do things that they don't permit you to do in the gym, right? Because there's one specific thing that you're supposed to do when you're going in a gym and you need to abide by those rules, right? If you're in school, like you got to obey the rules or be really good at avoiding them, but obey the rules, okay? And like you, or else you're going to get kicked out. Like, like things are going to not work in your favor. All, all these things, it's based on what you can do what is the basis of your relationship, what you have to offer each other. But Jesus says this. What does Jesus say? He says, this is my commandment that you love one another. What? As I have loved you. And Jesus is the one anotherness of the Christ-centered community. This is what Jesus is doing in John right here that's so revolutionary. He's, he's creating this new concept that we have of a Christ-centered community, uh, uh, like Epicos, okay, a Christ-centered community, and even like how we express it in groups to say, look, this is, this is how you will love each other. This is how you will stir one another up because I have loved you. And your commonality will have nothing to do with whether or not you share the same hobbies, grew up in the same area, have the same accent, like the same food. Ultimately, your commonality is that I love you. And this is one of the most profound things that will dramatically change all of our relationships, whether you are single, whether you are married, whether you are parent, no matter where you're at in your life, is that Jesus says, I love you because I love you. I love you because I love you. And that's how we're supposed to love others. And man, is that hard. It's so hard. Because I don't want to love everybody. I don't want the mutuality of the one anotherness that Jesus wants for us. I want to be a, a recipient of love for sure, all the time, in every way, please. We went out to eat at a, at a new restaurant and the, the waitress gave us like extra, extra goodies when we got some baked goods to leave. And I was like, yes, thank you, amen, all day. Yes, I will be the recipient of love from others all day. <laughs> but I will get to choose who I love. And Jesus says, if you truly abide in me, you don't get to choose who you love. Because I've already chosen. Cassie and I got married at 21 years old. Uh, really young, in case you're not picking up on what I'm trying to say here. 
And uh, we were the smartest 21-year-olds ever, the wisest 21-year-olds ever, right? We knew better than our parents. We knew better than our friends. We were the best 21-year-olds. And we dated long distance for two years uh, before we got married. And uh, we got married, and then I was finishing school in Oklahoma. And uh, so we moved on to Oklahoma. And uh, the two years that it took to build up our relationship uh, was completely unraveled in the following two years. And I graduated from college. Cassie and I didn't even know, we didn't know what the future held. And we found ourselves because of mistakes that we both made. In a situation where we were looking at each other going, what are we doing together? Is there any hope for us. Do I even want this? And it's in those moments in life when you really hit rock bottom with with that which matters most to you, where what you do next matters. And you see, one of the greatest blessings that came from that time in our season was that we experienced a one anotherness that we did not deserve. And we had friends just pour into us in ways that we did not deserve. We had family supporting us in ways that, trust me, we did not deserve. And we benefited from this loving one anotherness. Found ourselves, uh, we were just trying to get help for our marriage. So I, I made my father the most proud father by graduating with an with a accredited college degree and then living on someone's porch for two weeks homeless. <laughs> right? And then living in a camper for two weeks just trying to get help from other pastors and friends and then ending up at my home, just trying to figure out what's next. Cash and I realized it was like, okay, we really think God is still calling us into ministry even though we don't even know why or what that means, but the seminary door was still open and so we, we went to Louisville Southern Seminary and uh, we just got connected and we got plugged in and God just sent more people into our lives that we did not deserve, that just loved on us. And here's what happened first, our relationship with God, with Jesus, in that summer was restored. And the key to our marriage being restored was that first Cass and I had to fix our relationship with Jesus, which is just a really good lesson for all of us. We cannot expect to bear any fruit in our life. We cannot expect to have any kind of loving relationship unless we, are, unless we deeply understand how deeply rooted we are in Jesus. And we let him abide, we abide in him, and we let that abiding just move and move through us. And we saw our marriage completely restored. And I stepped like back into ministry, and it was just amazing. And it was all because of a one anotherness. Fast forward. Cassie and I have just found ourselves in very unique circumstances with so many other marriages where we've been now put in that place to disrupt something that is completely broken. Because that's what people did for us, right? They're like, hey, you're headed down this path 
and we need to blow that path up because you need to go this way. And we found ourselves like, like flourishing with this fruit in our life, fruit from, the, fruit from the Holy Spirit, fruit that gives God glory, that helps other couples, that helps other couples like restore their relationship. We got a postcard just the other day from, from a young couple who was just like thanking us. And we're like, man, praise God for, praise God for this, praise God for that, that brokenness. Because if it wasn't for that brokenness, like we wouldn't be able to express it in this way. Here's, here's what I want you to understand, is that the best way to really flourish as a Christian, the best way to really understand exactly how God has gifted you and what he has for you in your life, what he really wants for you, not what house you're going to live in or what job you're going to have, but how you are going to treat others and the benefit of the relationship that you can have with others is that if you let yourself get disrupted when the Holy Spirit's trying to work in your life so that you can move to love and do good works and then you can understand exactly the fruit that God wants to bear in your life and you see these spiritual gifts that God has given you when you work out your salvation in this way that you can start to use for other people and this is what it means to be in a Christ-centered community because this is who we will be as a church, where we come in and we do not hide our brokenness, where we do not uh, hide this from others, but where we sit around in a circle, in groups with others, like we have no business of being with sometimes, and where we share our brokenness. But in our brokenness, we understand that it is Christ who fills us, and that in him we can find completeness, and we can stir one another to love and good works, not because we are perfect. We can stir one another to love and good works, not because they deserve it, or because we have something profound to offer. We can stir one another to love and good works because Jesus has already done it in us. And man, if we can live this out in this way, what a beautiful image of the church. So community matters. Being in a Christ-centered community matters. Like coming here and sitting like in the row, like you're at the campus, shout out to Mayfair, right? Like you're in the row here. This is a Christ-centered community, but it's even more than that. It's, it's a mutuality that can only exist if we get into smaller groups, and we call these groups. This is why small groups are so important. It's not an agenda that Epicos has. It's a pattern that we see that Jesus wants us to live in. And you're going to see over the next year, we're going to be continuing uh, to offer a diverse understanding of what it means to be in a group from men's groups and women's groups and, and other kind of groups like this. Men, if you're struggling with pornography, we're going to be having groups where you can find restoration and people who will uh, disrupt your life and encourage you to live, to live more like Jesus. We need to do this in a group. And this is, this is the even deeper, <laughs> deeper understanding of Hebrews chapter 10 uh, when, he says, when he says, don't forsake meeting together. Look, it's like, look, you need to meet together not because they need to see your shiny teeth, but because we truly experience the goodness of Jesus when we live out the one anotherness that he asks us to live out. And look, be, hold this intention, okay? Hold this intention, because some of you are getting really excited. I can feel it with the whole like truth thing, and you've labeled yourself a truth teller. 
Oh, thank you, Pastor. You've given me a license to tell truth. No, 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 no. This is not, is not permission to abuse. This is not permission to, to be harmful. This is about bearing with one another and being gentle with one another, but it's this tension we hold with grace and truth. Uh, Pastor Anthony actually said it best this week in our sermon prep meeting. He's like, Mark, there's no, there's no loving way to watch a person walk off a cliff. I'm like, yeah, you're right. Let's be there. You're wondering, like, man, what does church have for me? Well, I'd encourage you, man, what can God use me for in this church? How can God use me, like, in great ways? Not just in groups, but maybe in serving, too, as you're just in community with each other. Loving one another, living out the one anotherness, being a true Christ-centered community. And I think that if we can really live this out, man, God will move through us in ways that we have yet to experience. Let's go ahead and pray. So Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love towards us, that, that you loved us first. And we thank you that we can then extend this one anotherness to each other. Thank you that we can just extend this uh, kindness and compassion and gentleness uh, all to each other, not because we have it to give, but Father, because you've already given it to us, and that is the commonality. Father, help us to be humble. Father, right now, some of us, we, just, we have people in our life who are trying to disrupt our life in a godly way, and we're, we're labeling them, and we're playing a victim, and we're doing all these things to push them aside. But Father, help us, help us to maybe listen and see how it is that we can truly grow. Father, help us to abide in you. And help us learn even more how we are to abide together. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.